Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I am back for another episode, and you are in for an Uber treat today because I'm in for an Uber treat, and I have with me Dennis Kucinich. Dennis is a politician, has worked in a municipal, state, and federal government, but we're here to talk about his most recent book, Division of Light and Power. So, Dennis, first of all, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Tom, thanks, and I uh, particularly appreciate being with your audience because some of the compliance and the ethics issues uh, here that that I dealt with years ago are, you know, very relevant today. So thanks so much for this opportunity. Well, you've hit upon the point that I really wanted to emphasize throughout this. Although the story that you tell in this book happened in the 70s, these events are, are literally relevant today. We just had a major settlement with First Energy in the state of Ohio around their corruption matters with the state government of Ohio. But Dennis, if I could start with, why did you decide to tell this story now? Tom, I started 40 years ago to try to write it. I was so too close to it to actually put it down. It was a shattering experience to be a 31-year-old mayor and to have all the ethical signposts of your life just pilloried, destroyed, where there was an inversion of reality and right was wrong and wrong was right because I had taken on the most powerful financial forces in the state, and they basically gaslit the entire community. And so I I was, in writing about it, it took me quite a while to sort it out. But let me say, this 660-page book is thoroughly documented. I mean, I took a lot of time going meticulously through federal court records, through the pages of the Atomic Safety and Licensing Commission relative to antitrust violations on the part of Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company that today their successor company is called First Energy. And I'm, you know, I'm, I finally finished the book oh, early this year and with a sense of great relief because the story had to be told. And people, as you started out in saying, people need to see the relevance of this story because some of the ethical challenges that came forth were not bound by time. This is one of the things that I really advocate that in the fight against corruption, it, it literally from the international to the municipal level, the press has a huge role in or what I would call the fourth estate. How did the media fail to really examine the entirety of the governance of the city of Cleveland? at the time, and did that later change to where the press actually assisted or helped in some ways? Well, keep in mind that the Cleveland Electric Lunin Company's strength was through a massive advertising budget, where they were one of the principal advertisers for radio, television, newspapers. And the old story about who pays the piper calls the tune, they were calling the tune on coverage of utility rate issues, on environmental nuclear issues. And I was able to come into contact with a document that basically was a plan to subvert the media to their own ends, which they did. The book details how they were able to engineer the firing of numerous reporters who went against their party line, which was essentially keep raising rates to the roof and don't expect anybody to challenge you. So the media was in the tank with CEI. And, you know, remember this phenomenon, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, we can argue what reality is, but our reality is socially constructed. 
It's heavily mediated. It is culturally affirmed. And so you have the possibility of being able to develop an alternative reality, which the people of Cleveland were impressed to accept. And that is that our municipally owned electric system, then known as MuniLite, was not up to delivering the service that the private competitive Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company was delivering. And the media kept banging away at trying to build a case for the sale of the public power system. And they were successful in doing that, Tom, because they actually, events culminated in the sale of our electric system, which I then intervened to stop. And at that moment, a high-powered rifle shot misses my head by a fraction, and suddenly the mob appears as an element in this. At that time, Cleveland was a bombing capital of America. Mob activities were were in full operation with loan sharking, gambling, prostitution, drugs. Cleveland was uh, a place where they were very busy and they had to work in the government as well. And when I became mayor, I was informed by the head of police intelligence that there was an assassination plot underway and that in a later discussion told me it was about our municipal electric system. That by blocking the sale, I was standing in the way of people making a lot of money. You know, this is a, a story of corporate espionage, corporate sabotage, of mob-directed assassination plots, of banks, of bank extortion against the city. And there's never been a story quite like this told on the American political scene because very few people on the inside have ever had a chance to tell this kind of a story. But I did. Well, Dennis, as we've said a couple of times, these issues are still with us today. I live in Texas, and we experienced either by incompetence or negligence or intentional acts, uh, four and five day blackouts in the worst winter storm in Texas since the 1890s. And in the year 2000, Enron took plants offline in California, caused blackouts in that state. I really wanted to use those to introduce to the topic of how was uh, Muni Light really eviscerated and how did the people of Cleveland suffer from these actions? Well, first of all, keep in mind that Muni Light, when it was, from the time it was created, provided cheaper electricity for people in the city. There's two electric companies, one owned by the city and the other one owned by an investor-owned utility, CEI. They competed side by side in about a third of the city with Muni Light offering rates that were 20% cheaper. I mean, this is a no-brainer. You know, if you can get the same power, instead of paying $100 a month, pay $80 a month, you'll take the cheaper power. And that was the that was the strength of MuniLite in that they provided not just cheaper electricity, but kept taxes down because it provided street lighting and service to the various city facilities. Well, CEI developed a plan to take over MuniLite, and the first part of it was to block any repairs to the MuniLite generator and to cripple MuniLite's ability to make power. And they did that by lobbying members of city council and doing what you do during lobbying, you know, campaign contributions, dinners, parties, tickets to sports events, whatever. They softened up the council, blocked any repairs from being made to the generator. Uh, MuniLite then couldn't generate its own power, had to buy power from outside. CEI blocked MuniLite from buying power from any place other than from them. And then they tripled the cost of power. You know, this was a calculated almost a military-type strategy to, as you use the word, eviscerate a public power system uh, for private gain. And it didn't matter that it hurt the community. I mean, this what CEI did, they actually created blackouts on the MuniLite system deliberately and then went into sent salesmen in the MuniLite areas to say, well, it looks like your power system isn't working too well. Why don't you go with one that is? 
and then they'd give people breaks on wiring at their homes. I mean, this was this was a full-fledged attack on public power. It was totally corrupt. And people in the private sector went along with it. People in government went along with it. Political parties went along with it. The media went along with it. And I did. One of the key themes that I hope people will take away from this book, Dennis, is that government works. And you really hammer home why citizens, the taxpayers, people like you and me, need to pay attention to the way their government's operated. I was wondering if you could expound on how that is a way for both positive and honest government to work with citizen oversight? Yes, of course. Well, as I said in the book, government works. The question is, who is it working for? And in this case, Cleveland, during that time, government was working for private interests who contributed to campaigns. And you had that crony capitalism atmosphere that developed, where on top of that, you have moral hazard, people getting tax dollars. Some are getting tax dollars, others aren't, in terms of uh, handouts. And and where government just becomes a, an agency of a corrupt system, instead of being open to helping everyone, it's helped only a few at the expense of the many. So I've seen government become a racket under those terms. It, should, it shouldn't be that way. Government works. question is, who is it working for? And so I'm, um, citizens have an obligation to ask questions. And if you see something that doesn't look right, you know, we're all told after 9-11, if you see something, say something. Well, let me tell you, that's true of government. If something doesn't look right, it probably isn't. And the only way we keep government honest is to raise the questions. The media doesn't have the kind of investigative reporters they had anymore. They used to have. And so we're pretty much left to the not-so-tender mercies of public officials who look at their power as being an opportunity to make a fast buck for themselves got to be really on the ball. And if you see something that's of concern to you, raise the questions and don't stop asking questions. Because the question is, uh, is actually, I think, the most effective antidote to protect our democracy from getting poisoned. Dennis, one part of this story is very much your story. And this is really where the ethics tie in the most, because you were offered bribes. You uh, People attempted to corrupt you and you did not take those. And I really wanted to ask, what was it in your background? What was it that you had? What was inside you that gave you or allowed you to summon up the strength to deny suitcases of cash, literally, that were presented to you? You know, it's a Crosby, Stills, Nash song about teacher children. There's a line that says, uh, you, you know, you there out on the road must have a code that you can live by. And my code has always been like an inner moral compass, not holier than now, not self-righteous, but just a simple understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And that comes through a process of what you learn at home, what you learn in school, what you may learn in connection with any particular religion. And it also developed with an understand, you know, belief on my part that there is such a thing as a soul, that there's a God, and that there is accountability. And my view might be that accountability is more instant that karma is instant, that if you do something wrong, you're going to pay for it. You don't do right only because you'll suffer if you don't. You do right because that is the, the way to live. It's an ethical way to live. Now, when I was in the sixth grade, uh, Sister Leona, and I write about this in the book, left the room. She came back. The classroom was in tumult. She wasn't very happy. She told the children, take out a pencil and a piece of paper, and she wrote a poem on the board. She said, copy this poem, and then we, we did. And then she told us to great groans, take this home and copy it 50 times and bring it back tomorrow. So that meant we're going to spend a whole evening writing out this poem. And here's the poem. It's a very short one. 
It's called the minute. I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. Give account if I abuse it. Heaven help me if I lose it. Just one tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. So when you look at the eternity of the moment, that the past, the present, and the future exist simultaneously, that we create our own accountability and we create ourselves and we evolve through our own thinking and through our own actions, then you know, then you can start to understand why trying to lead a decent and a moral life where you never have to worry about you know what you said one day to the next and just go forward with a light heart. You know, it's an easy way to live. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this podcast episode, but I wanted to end by asking you one final question, which is, if someone were to ask you what your legacy would be, what would you say to us today? I'm still creating it. (laughs) More to come. That's great. I've been visiting (laughs) with uh, Dennis Kucinich, the author of Division of Light and Power. We're going to link to uh, not only the book, but where you can get it in the show notes. Dennis, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to visit with me today. And uh, frankly, can't wait to see what you come up with next. Well, thank you. And make sure uh, everyone check out this book. I think you'll find it important for your line of work. Thanks again. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review. 